This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from various selections from the book of Proverbs. Hear the word of the Lord. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. The heart of the wise man, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Michelle. Please be seated. Again, glad you're here. Welcome. Last uh, weekend, our family drove a total of six hours. I have five little children, and we drove six hours and went to a wedding uh, together. It's a very rare blessing uh, for me. Usually, we don't uh, get to arrive together, walk in together, sit in the pews together, because most of the weddings I attend, I help officiate the ceremony in one way or another. Uh, We intentionally arrived early. We figured the kids um, could walk around, burn some energy, play some games, sort of get emotionally and physically prepared to sit through the ceremony, never knowing exactly how long a ceremony can last. But Gigi, my uh, four-year-old daughter, was not sold on my plan. She was particularly antsy uh, to get in uh, to the sanctuary and sit down. And um, I'm guessing that we were in our seats a good 20 minutes before the wedding began. And and as you know, um, while there is some talking, you're not supposed to be particularly loud at that point in a wedding. And finally, the wedding party uh, began uh, to make their orchestrated entrance. Uh, You know how it works these days most often. Um, Right when uh, the men entered the room, the the pastor leading the groom, leading the groomsmen, right when they entered the room and Gigi saw her friend uh, Eric um, in, in a tux, she leaned over and asked me, not so quietly um, and, and really uh, somewhat impatiently, she said, when are they going to kiss? <laughs> now think about that. The perfunctory solo had not been sung. The mandatory congregational hymn that no one knows had not yet been played. The pastor had not given the charge that no one listens to. The prayer bench had not been visited. The rings had not been given. The bride was not even in the room. And she cut to the chase, wanting to know when the highlight of her trip was going to happen. (laughs) When are they going to kiss? If you've uh, been here for the past two weeks, I've been threatening each week to finish this sermon from the book of Proverbs on words. And uh, I've been threatening uh, for three weeks now to preach the last point, the source of healing words 
15 days ago, a Saturday, I thought one sermon could handle this topic of words from the book of Proverbs. And then 14 days ago, as I sat in my, my, my chair over here, I call it um, my season ticket chair. That's where I sit. I paid for that one. Um, I decided right before walking up here, I would do everyone a favor and make it a two-part sermon. And, and I preached the first point. It was called The Power of Words. We'll talk about it briefly in a moment. And then last week, I thought for sure I'd get the last two points in. But as you know, if you're here, I only finished the second point, the anatomy of life giving words. And our one sermon became three. And so today, after a little review, I I honestly, Lord willing, believe that we will cover the third point, the source of life giving words. It's in my estimation, the kiss that we've all been waiting for. The power of words, first, very quickly. We talked extensively about this two weeks ago. I reviewed the pertinent details last week in about 10 minutes, so I will summarize it here in one or two sentences and give you one illustration. The book of Proverbs says this, that words, your ability to speak, your ability to communicate, your ability to be heard by another person is the most powerful resource you have. It's more powerful than your muscles, than your education, than your money, than your networks. The most powerful resource you have is words. Chapter 18, 21, the beginning in your worship folder says that we literally have the ability to kill or give life with the product of our tongues. Uh, Paul David Tripp paraphrases 18, 21 this way. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or their fruit. You decide. By way of review, in the physical realm, the emotional realm, the spiritual and eternal realm, in the realm of community, our words can either poison, wound, destroy, and bring death, or they can nourish, heal, build up, and bring about life. You decide. Regardless of where you are with the gospel, regardless of where you are in your understanding of the Bible, think about this illustration that words have incredible power. I read this week on MSNBC.com, excuse me, in the archive section from like three years ago, an article entitled this, How to Get a Wow Over Veggies This Holiday. So moms, if you get nothing else from the sermon, in a moment, I'm gonna give you some great words. It was uh, performed by uh, Dr. Wansink, um, a PhD who runs a food and brand lab. And he, he's learned through scientific study that the name of a product will not only influence how much of a product is purchased, but the name of the product can actually impact how enjoyable the product is. So not only does a well-named product sell more, but people will scientifically, statistically, and substantially rate a well-named product to be more satisfying, whether it's a main course of veggie or dessert. For example, if a product is named red beans and rice one week, and then the same product is named traditional Cajun red beans and rice the next, not only will the traditional Cajun red beans and rice sell almost twice as many portions, but the people eating the dish will rate their satisfaction twice as high. Or, He found that if he took two pieces of day-old chocolate cake and labeled one chocolate cake and the other, listen to this, 
This will make some of you salivate. Belgian Black Forest double chocolate cake and puts them side by side. Not only will the second be purchased more frequently, but people eating it will rate it as more delicious and more satisfying than those who eat a plain old piece of chocolate cake. Now, moms, this is for you. He interviewed and studied hundreds of children, letting them choose what they wanted from a buffet lunch line, changing the names of foods each day, and he found that power peas were chosen twice as often as regular peas and enjoyed more. He also found that when they renamed a tomato-based vegetable juice, think V8, that had already been tested to not be popular among kids, renamed it Rainforest Smoothie, and they ran out. They had multiple kids who had consumed their portion beg for more. Such is the power of words. Of course, marketing firms have picked up on this. These are four products that failed in initial testing and have become incredibly popular with nothing about the product changing, just rebranded. There was once a fish from Chile in select American markets that flopped because it was sold as a toothfish, a direct translation of its Chilean name. But when renamed the Chilean sea bass, the fish became wildly popular across the states. I'm not sure how you would pronounce this in Canada, but R-A-P-E-S-E-E-D, oil, did not do well in American grocery stores. But they changed it to canola, and it's done quite well. One of my favorite candies was originally called the opal fruit. Okay, they tried Starburst. It's become a favorite of millions. Finally, nobody wanted to buy the Australian gooseberry. But those little hairy green things, now called kiwi, do quite well. If this is true of marketing, our eating habits, and even our salivating, how much more do words have incredible power in our relationships? I can't go back and review it all, but over two weeks now we've studied biblically, theologically, and according to the book of Proverbs, why words are so powerful because we're created in God's image. Second, the anatomy of life-giving words. Um, uh, Again, last week, we, we went through the book of Proverbs and we said, so if Proverbs says that our words have the power to kill or, or to give life, if they have the power um, uh, to poison or, or to nourish, then the book of Proverbs, gratefully, I can tell you, also gives multiple marks or characteristics of what life-giving words look like. And I said last week that there's so many diverse situations where words can be life-giving. They can be words of healing, words of encouragement, words of training. Even a word of rebuke can be life-giving and healthy. But in all of these scenarios that I just mentioned here, life-giving words have at least these nine characteristics in the book of Proverbs. And again, I'm going to fly, but I have to say some of these things to get to our last point. We're going to go quick. If you have your worship folder, I've given you um, an aid in there, putting behind each verse, which 
word I'm illustrating. First, whether they're responding to a conversation or starting one, the wise are thoughtful about what they say. 1813, not in your worship folder. The fool speaks before he hears or comprehends. The fool listens in order to say something. The wise listen in order to understand. 1528, in your worship folder, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, not just what to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Secondly, uh, life-giving words are truthful. Chapter 14, verse 25, a truthful witness saves or delivers or recovers lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful or, or better said, treacherous. They're, they're hazardous, they're dangerous. We said last week that while lying and telling half-truths and spinning the truth or maybe keeping our mouths shut, it, it often seems easiest. And, it, and at times it appears to be the best thing for community. But in actuality, deception always destroys community because it causes the two parties involved to see reality differently and it automatically erodes the relationship and brings on isolation, making true intimacy impossible. Third, we said that the words of the wise that have the power of life and nourishment are acceptable. And I don't mean by that nice and polite and Southern. I mean that they're receivable. There's, there's a theme in Proverbs that says this, that there are certain words in a certain way of speaking that's more acceptable. It's more receivable by the one hearing them. 1032, not in your worship folder. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. It's not a word for morality. It's a word for favorable, delightful, desirable. Uh, 2426, Whoever gives an honest or straightforward answer kisses the lips. I hope to come back to this in a moment. But for now, let me simply say that, that the part, there is a part of giving an honest answer that, that you have to give the same care and the same thoughtfulness and the same precision as a kiss that hits its mark on the lips. Fourth, circumstantial, 25, 11, and 12, a word fitly spoken, literally spoken in the right circumstances is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. When speaking honest words, especially those that are potentially hard to hear, the wise person thinks about the circumstances of the other person's life to see if they have the bandwidth to receive the words. Verse 12 goes on and it gives the most crucial circumstance to consider when speaking. Are you speaking to a listening ear? A major theme in Proverbs is this, don't talk to someone who is not listening. Fifth, according to Proverbs, life-giving words are seasonal or timely. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, literally a timely word, how good and agreeable it is. The words are, that are factually true but are given at the wrong time. Words that are factually true but given at the wrong time are wrong. They won't be listened to. They've not been adapted to the timing and the circumstances of the hearer. Six, healthy words are gentle. Not only does the book of Proverbs say gentleness is the best option for dealing with someone who is coming at you with hate and venom, chapter 15, verse one, but patient, gentle words have the most potential to convince and persuade. In your worship folder, 2515, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded. And a soft or, or gentle, it's translated in other places in Proverbs, or a tender tongue can break a bone. 
We tend to believe that manipulation and making threats and responding to fire with fire and yelling louder than our opponent, in quotes, is the most effective way to win the war. But Proverbs says this, gentleness, softness, and tenderness is most wise, most loving, most successful. Seventh, and I know we're going fast. We're, we're, we're going through the perfunctory solo right now. We're, we're gonna get to the kiss here in a minute. Seventh, life-giving words are acceptable because they're graceful. 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We assume that graceful words cannot coexist with truthful words. We often think that you have to pick one or the other, but biblical grace is full of truth. Did you see it in John 1 this morning? That Jesus came full of grace and truth, and in his fullness, we experienced what? Grace upon grace. That the grace he came with, we received as grace, and the truth he came to tell us was a grace to us because it was joined as grace and truth. Graceful words don't look past the sinful reality of the hearer, but they look upon the sinner with acceptance, forgiveness, and hope. Next is minimal, the eighth mark of a wise word in Proverbs. A consistent theme in Proverbs is this. Multiple times you'll see this word restrain used as it talks about our lips. 10.19, a wise or prudent person restrains their lips because they have the humility to know that when words are many, transgression, that's sin against God and other human beings, that transgression is not lacking or it's literally unavoidable. From a negative perspective, Proverbs is saying this, the more we speak, the more likely we are to sin against God and to harm and hurt the people around us. I know from my own life that words have to be minimal if I'm gonna have any chance at all at being helpful in someone else's life. Minimal, just think about the amount of energy, the concentration, the meditation, the time it takes me and you to reflect and to consider, are my words thoughtful enough? Are they apt enough? Are they gentle enough? Are they truthful enough? Are they graceful enough? But from a positive perspective or what I call a stewardship perspective that God has given you the ability to give life to other people through your words, not only are our words to be minimal so that we minimize personal sin and the damage in other people's lives, but our words are to be minimal so that we can seize the opportunity to say something beautiful. This is the ninth and final mark of life-giving words. They're beautiful pieces of art. Look back at 2511. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And then back down at the bottom, verse 12, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. The words that are wise, even words of reproof or correction, they're compared to exquisite, creative, valuable, beautiful craftsmanship, apples of gold in a setting of silver. It doesn't say gold in its natural setting. It doesn't say gold melted into a bar. It says gold crafted into a piece of art with all the intricacies of an apple and then set in silver. Verse 12 says, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. If you were here last week, this is the point in the sermon where I told the story of Evie Hill's wife who didn't browbeat him, didn't criticize him, didn't emasculate him, didn't crush him, 
when his job as a pastor couldn't provide enough money to pay the light bill. But instead, she lit candles. She invited him into a romantic evening and she told him that they would one day turn on the lights and she concluded, let's eat by candlelight. Not only is that thoughtful, timely, and graceful, it is beautiful indeed. So now, uh, the kiss we've been waiting for, the source of our healing words. If I lost you during that time because it was too redundant compared to last week, or if I lost you because it was too fast and you weren't here last week, jump back in with me now. This is new material. This is something fresh I want to talk about uh, today. Let's talk about the source of our healing words this way. Let's talk about the source of our words. Let's talk about the source of our healing And let's uh, finally, as points of application, let's talk about how this enables us to give healing or life-giving words. All right, first, the source of our words. The book of Proverbs is clear. Our words come from and are sourced out of our hearts and they don't simply originate in our mouths. I could show you through Hebrew poetry, I could show you through vocabulary, I can show you directly with 1623 that that words come from the deepest parts of who we are. And so to understand how to give life-giving words, we have to understand where words come from. By way of poetry, at least five or six times, I could show you how uh, parallelism in the Hebrew poetry shows that words and the tongue go together. I'll just give you one example, Proverbs 10, 20. Listen to this. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart, see how the tongue and the heart are used uh, almost interchangeably, but the heart of the wicked is of little worth. Or think about vocabulary. If you're paying attention as I've been reading these verses over the last three weeks, You'll notice that when you would expect a simple word like speaks or says or tells, a different word is used. For example, 1425, it says, one who breathes out lies is treacherous. You would expect it to say that one who speaks lies is treacherous. But the word is letting us know that our words come from somewhere deeper in us than just our mouths. Chapter 15, 28, the mouth of the wicked pours out. It's literally belches forth evil. That the Proverbs editor and writer is telling us that our words come from deeper than our mouths, that we can't just think through techniques to give life-giving words, that they're gonna have to, we're gonna have to have something done about the core of who we are if we'll have any chance to give life-giving words. Look at 1623, it says this directly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. It's a synonym for wise. The heart of the wise makes his speech wise. Think about this. Think about the nine marks I just gave you. And this is the reason I gave you those nine marks is that they're not simple techniques. They describe the heart of a person with character. To speak truth, our hearts have to value, love, and believe in truth. To speak gently, our hearts have to be gentle. To speak graciously, our hearts have to value and love grace, forgiveness, acceptance, and hope. This week, after studying this now for 21 days, 
It's hard to wake me up um, because normally I get up so early, but my kids were having a sleepover in the guest room, which is right above my bedroom. And in the very wee hours of the morning, I heard them scampering around up there like rats. And um, I was going up the stairs and, you know, I was like, okay, Ted, thoughtful, truthful, graceful. Come on, you can do it. The nine marks, you've been thinking about it now for two weeks. No, my heart went up there angry. My heart went up there impatient. My heart went up there ready to speak with volume. My heart went up there ready to scare them. Why? Because to speak gracious words, it is not about technique, it is about the heart. And so we can talk about the power of words and we can talk about the technique of life-giving words, but until we realize that the marks of life-giving words are all about character in the heart and not techniques you learn in a book, we'll have no chance at speaking life-giving words. Go back to 24, uh, 26, the verse I used this week to talk about what is acceptable. Uh, we can't simply adopt a technique. We have to be changed at the core, at the level of our heart. Listen to what this actually means. It says, whoever gives an honest or straightforward answer kisses the lips. This is the only place in all of the Bible where kiss on the lips is found. You would think in Song of Solomon's or some other place or when it's talking about the beautiful wife in Proverbs 31, you'd think you would see what, uh, this kiss on the lips more often, but this is the only place, and of course it means something totally different than now 3,000 years later than it did back then. Most of the commentaries uh, include this quote from Herodotus, and Herodotus, as you know, is the father of history. He's a Greek historian who wrote about the period of time that the Proverbs were being written. Listen to what he says. This helps us understand what it means when it's a kiss on the lips. When one man meets another, it is easy to see if the two are equals. For if equals, then without speaking, they kiss each other on the lips. If the difference in rank be but little, it is the cheek, of course, by the inferior. Uh, the inferior kisses the cheek of the superior. If the difference in rank is great, the humbler bows down and kisses the feet of the other. So if that's the context for what kiss on the lips means when the book of Proverbs is written, think about it this way. This is the point. In order to give an honest, straightforward answer, the person giving the words has to see themselves. They have to view themselves as equals to the one who is listening to them. Think about this. We get this intuitively. There are two temptations we can fall prey to that are opposed to giving a straightforward answer. Sometimes we're afraid of the people we're talking with and we see ourselves as inferior and we go in and we skirt the truth. We're not honest, we're not forthright, we're not blunt, we're not direct. To go with the illustration of 2426, we kiss them on the cheek or on the foot, but not on the lips. Now listen, think about this. Sometimes we're arrogant towards the people we're talking with. We see ourselves as superior and we will often not value gentleness, humility, and patience. So again, to go back to 2426, we expect the other person to kiss our cheek or to kiss our foot. Listen, we've all experienced this in receiving truth. 
Hopefully everyone has been blessed with this kind of friend, not a friend who's afraid of you and speaks to you with flattery and wishy-washy, but also at the same time, not a friend who thinks they're better than you and is always condemning and judgmental and looking down at you. What an amazing gift it is to have an equal, a peer, a true friend, not superior, not inferior. Be gentle, honest, humble, and confident in telling us the truth. Being able to kiss someone on the lips with a straightforward answer is not a technique. It is a posture of your heart. To kiss someone on the lips with truth, you have to be both humble and confident at the exact same time. Good luck doing that for yourself. It's impossible. No, you say, okay, well, it's good to know that the source of my words is my heart and that I need to be working there instead of on the techniques of my mouth. I'm gonna start working on the values of my heart. Look at chapter 20, verse nine. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. I preached the third sermon in this series on the heart. I won't repeat it here, but the Bible is clear. Think about this analogy you have a better chance of seeing the back of your own neck right now without the aid of a mirror or a camera than you do changing your own heart. You have a better chance right now at seeing the back of your own neck than changing your own heart. Jeremiah says our hearts are wicked and unknowable to us. Proverbs says our hearts are like deep, murky, mysterious waters. And James in the New Testament, using similar metaphors to the Proverbs of springs and fruit, says this, no human being can tame the tongue. Bottom line, this is very important. In order for our words to be life-giving, our hearts have to receive life from someone outside of us. So that, as Jesus says in Matthew, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouths can speak. How does this happen? If what we have to receive is this healing, who is giving it away? Of course, the answer is God through Jesus in the gospel. Second, the source of our healing. So, If this point is the source of healing words, we've talked about the source of our words being our heart. Let's talk about the source of the healing of our heart. And it is going to be this, receiving the word of God for us in Jesus. Have you seen uh, the movie Blood Diamond? I'm not recommending that everyone here see it, especially if little kids. I'm not recommending you go out and rent it and spend Father's Day watching it. But if you've seen it, there's a powerful scene towards the end of that movie that I think illustrates what we've been talking about now for three weeks. I hesitate to use the illustration for a couple of reasons. I don't wanna ruin the movie for you and I don't think I will, at least not in totality. And um, I'm not sure how much background to give you to make the most of this, Uh, but here it goes. Blood Diamond is a 2006 war film about diamonds mined in African war zones and, and sold to finance the conflicts and, and, the, and the profit of the warlords. And uh, while the scenery is beautiful and the acting is by and large fantastic, it, it's very, very tragic. It's deeply painful to watch. 
The setting is the Sierra Leone Civil War, somewhere between 96 and 99, and it's a country that is literally being ripped apart by the struggle between the government soldiers and the rebel forces. The film starts um, with Solomon Vandy, a Mindy fisherman, walking his oldest son, Dia, to school on his way uh, to work. As Solomon and his son, Dia, walk, the Revolutionary United Front, the RUF rebels, drive into their village as was their custom and practice, and they enslave Solomon uh, to work in the diamond fields, and they kidnap his son, Dia, uh, to be brainwashed uh, with words, chants, slogans, and songs, and, and they turn him, this prepubescent boy, into a hardened killer. He lives in violence and vulgarity. He lives in tragedy and trauma. And again, it's, it's very hard to watch because it's, it's difficult to simply see that as a movie plot, let alone to realize that that's the reality in parts of the world we live in. Not to be too simplistic but for the sake of time, Solomon Vandy spends the next hour and a half of the movie with Danny Archer, um, his partner, looking uh, for two things, a massive diamond that he had hid while working in the fields, and his son, the second thing he's looking for is his son turned warrior, uh, Dia. Uh, The scene um, I want to remind you of or tell you about um, is this one. It's it's when Solomon comes into the presence of the diamond and his son at the exact same time. Remember, Uh, Dia sees him as someone of the past. Uh, He sees him as the enemy. Uh, Through the brainwashing words of the rebels, he he believes that his identity, uh, that being Dia's, is one of hardened killer and not beloved son. And so Solomon is digging for the diamond and right when he finds the diamond, Dia walks up on them and he points the gun at Danny Archer. And Solomon says, Dia, what are you doing? Dia's young face is stony and lifeless. Dia, look at me. What are you doing? And Dia ignores his dad even further. Solomon stands up slowly from the digging. And in Dia's native tongue, Solomon says this, you are Dia Vandy of the proud Mindy tribe. It's very moving. Dia takes the gun off of Danny and he points it directly at his dad and you can see in his face he's trying to decide, who am I? Solomon continues with a powerful barrage of words. You're a good boy. And Solomon begins to move towards him slowly, powerfully, lovingly. You love soccer. You love school. The camera switches back and Dia begins to shake And Solomon continues, your mother loves you so much. And the camera's back on Solomon. His eyes are filled with tears and and his words begin to tremble. And the dad continues, she waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda. And there's a new baby, Dia. And the camera switches back and forth between father and son several times as they stand a few feet away. Dia, the son's, his nostrils are beginning to flare and he's holding back tears and his hands are still pointing the cocked gun at his father. And Solomon continues to move towards him with tears of love running down his face. And Dia, in an intensely powerful scene, both hands on the shaky gun, tears welling up in his eyes. Finally, they begin to flow down his face. And Solomon continues, the cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you. Dia's 
anger is completely gone and his face is flooded with tears. Solomon says, I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. Now close enough that the gun is touching the chest of Solomon. Listen to what Solomon says. This is the gospel that will heal our hearts and make flow from us life-giving words to others. But there's a caveat you have to understand right now. This illustration does not perfectly depict the gospel because while Dia is not responsible in his dad's eyes, we are responsible. We have been bad. We are bad. We are guilty. We are rebellious. The gospel is even more beautiful and amazing than Blood Diamond because this is what God says. Even though you have been guilty, you have been wretched, even though you have rebelled against me, listen to what he says to us in the gospel. This heals us. I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again. Amen. As the scene concludes, Solomon is towering over his son. He's lowered the gun. Solomon, with tender, gentle strength, wipes the tears from Dia's eyes. He caresses his head with his hands. Dia surrenders to him and puts his hand in his chest, his head in his chest, and Solomon kisses his son. If you're new to Jesus' church, or if you've heard it a thousand times, listen again. This is what deals with our hearts. This is what causes our hearts to melt and to be healed and to break. This is what makes us wise and vital with our words. The book of Romans says this, that the spirit of God, the spirit of sonship, the spirit of Jesus, which God has poured into our hearts so that we can experience and receive his love. One of the chores of the spirit among many is this, chapter eight, to bear witness to our hearts that we are the children of God. To say to the children of God who believe by faith, the Spirit says to us, you are Ted Sin, younger brother of Jesus Christ. And I know you have done bad things, but you are a good boy, not because you have earned it, but because you are good in Christ's righteousness. And you have chores to do. There are dogs that will only behave you. There are people needing the unique you to minister to them through words. You have chores to do. And God says to us through his spirit, I am your father who loves you. You will come home with me and you will be my child again. Let's pray. Lord, I again get to the end of my time and then some, and there are more words on this paper that I wanted to say. Ugh. But I would ask you now in all humility and confidence that you would take by your spirit the hearts of your people here and that you would minister to them right now. That you would fall fresh on us, that you would fall anew on us, that you would convince us that we're your children, that we find forgiveness in you, that we find affirmation in you, that we find chores of love to do in the lives of others in you. Would you speak to our hearts the mending words we need to hear so that out of our hearts might come healing words for others?